Chapter Twenty Four of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Twenty Four. Tis most true, two souls, let them suffer the gall of hazard, so they grow together, will never sink. John Fletcher. Discords quenched by meeting harmonies die in the large and charitable air, and all our rarer, truer, better self, that better self, shall live. George Eliot They seem to themselves now to have become the discoverers of the state of Florida. Above them widened new heavens, below them a new earth leaped. Lonely and awed as lovers, they wandered about the forests and the shore. He was boyish about having her with him. She shared his walks, his drives, his sails. He drooped if they were parted for an hour. His breath and color deepened. His recovery presented itself to them as a foregone conclusion. He talked a good deal, more often of their future, sometimes of all that they had put behind them. He would come up excitedly and say, "'If we don't make it work at the West, Avis, what then? Shall you be contented to come back here? You and I could be happy here forever, couldn't we? And we could educate the girl ourselves." Then she would listen, smiling, and put up her hand, and say nothing. She liked better to let him talk and go dreaming. And he, reverently turning his cheek, still hollow as it was, upon her palm, would slide intently on. If his health gave way again at the West—but of course he meant to try it faithfully, that was understood. If the climate proved too irritating, or the classroom drudgery—but he thought he should know better how to manage that another time. Still it was a comfort to know that, if worst came to worst, they could return, and start the sanitarium or the boarding-school. It would be quite practicable to find a suitable housekeeper. Avis should not be exhausted by that. Or if that failed, there was the orange business. He was convinced that there was room for a large orange grove even here, and farther up the river a little northern pluck would work a miracle any day. They might do worse than to take to orange culture, though he preferred his profession and itself considered. He thought, too, it would be a pleasanter life for her. He wanted, above all, to make it a little easier for her now. Ostrander did not notice how scanty were his wife's answers to all this. Her smile was so rich her surrendered hand so voluble. As for Avis, she heard him without annoyance or dispute. She would have been uneasy if Philip had undergone a transformation, like a hero in a novel, in which his weaknesses were sublimated, and his faults idealized beyond her recognition. She would have distrusted a grand metamorphosis as in itself but another form of a capricious and curious self-delusion. It seemed to her the great triumph of her life that she could love her husband just as God had made him. And that Philip, being Philip, could come leaning in this pathetic way upon her love, the sure strained love of five married years, this seemed to her just then more a prophecy than a fulfilment of hope. After all, what was this one world, to souls which had been joined together by any tissues too firm for the attrition of time to tear? at best a root beneath a forest of experience. Perhaps, she thought, those married men and women were better fitted than they knew for the permanent character of a spiritual form of society, who at the end of one life passed together, could intelligently desire to renew the relation in a second. When he talked of herself and her work, her reserve deepened. He spoke much of both. It was, Avis, when you get to painting, or, 
Avis, one thing I mean to make sure of, that you shall be hampered no longer in your own plans. Or, why have you done nothing new this winter, Avis? Or, now all goes well with us, dear, we shall see you famous. She said, Yes, Philip. Why argue the matter? She knew how that would be, and she could not have said she didn't care. She did not cheat her clear nature by telling herself or him that she found in her married lot vicarious atonement for what she had missed. A human gift is a rebellious prisoner, and she was made human before she was made woman. But she thought it mattered less to her than it did once, all this lost and unquelled life. They had saved the life of life, they had saved their wedded love, the rest could be borne. One day she could not ride with him, there being a burden of home-letters and little accumulating feminine tasks which she performed less nervously alone. It was the morning, too, for a spelling-lesson that she gave their waiter in the boarding-house, a handsome mulatto boy to whom both had taken a fancy, whenever the state of Jeff's intellect or dining-room permitted. They compromised, for she did not like Philip to go alone, upon the company of their neighbour Smith. Smith was down on the wharf, and he would find him, if she wished, and they would ride a little toward the swamps, and return when they were hungry. He held her hand, and chatted a good deal about it. He had taken a slight cold for a day or two past, and clung to her, quickly depressed, with more than usual dependence. It was, "'Avis, don't stay long downstairs.' "'Coming back soon, Avis. Would you just as leave sit here?' I can't see you there by the window." This morning, when he had gone as far as the gate, he came back. She was standing on the veranda, as it happened, quite alone, in her light dress and the low, dark outline of her hair. He came back and kissed her again, and said she must not miss him. She watched him walking down the narrow road, the road like a river of sand. He turned and nodded to her. The wind struck his bright hair. He looked flashing and fresh to her, as if she saw him for the first time in her life. He drew her with that subtle fascination which nature takes a fitful delight in bestowing upon some creatures, as a substitute for strength, perhaps, shall we say, as an index of undeveloped strength. Avis followed him with a girl's blush and a wife's eyes. Her heart went to meet that Indian summer of married life, which after the rain settles down upon the purple air. It was towards noon that, having put her morning's work behind her, she went downstairs to find the boy Jeff. On the landing she met, with his baby in his arms and his boy at his coat-tails, and his wife calling to him to come back and shut the door, the patient form of Mr. Smith. She stopped to say, "'Did you not meet my husband this morning?' with an unconscious change of colour. "'Oh, yes,' said Mr. Smith, "'and I wanted to go with him. He had a pretty marsh pony. He's a fine rider, your husband.' But, you see, Mrs. Smith has had a bad night. She says it's the worst she's had, and the baby's got the colic, and the girl eat too much breakfast, and the boy—let me see, what is the matter with the boy—oh, yes, the boy chopped off the end of his finger with a hatchet. But maybe if the nurse hadn't had the sick headache I might have brought it about," added Mr. Smith, with a pensive and powerful effort of the imagination. Mrs. Ostrander went on and gave Jeff his lesson. Philip would be in to dinner, she hoped, since he had gone alone or he might have easily found company among the sporting men about the hotel. He did not come home to dinner. But this was not unusual. Often they had ridden till late in the afternoon, returning with the breeze which set in from the river, he saying, as they jogged along in the happy weather, "'How glad I am you came!' She settled herself restlessly to some long-neglected sketches. It was difficult to remember when she had passed an afternoon alone before. She sat in the strange silence with flushed cheeks. 
Mrs. Smith, in the next room, had brightened a little, and her husband could be heard gallantly telling her how well she looked. The people began to collect in the parlour and on the verandas. Jeff came up to ask if Mr. Ostrander's dinner should be kept hot any longer, his main argument being that, as they wanted the oven for the supper, Mr. Ostrander must have dined with a gentleman. The shaded room began to cool about her. It was time to open the blinds to the breeze from the bay. It was time for the sensitive shadow of the jasmine to deepen across the tea-rose tree, and the sharp edges of the orange-leaves to grow blunt in the eye that was strained with peering across them to the empty road. It was time for Philip Ostrander to come home. Steps upon the sand, manly steps enough, impetuous and ringing, as of one who hurried up to say, "'Did I frighten you getting back so late?' The jaunty hotel-waiter looks up as he goes by. The light flares on the big seal-ring he wears. He has a red sea-bean upon his watch-guard. He lifts his hat to the quadroon cook, who is opening oysters in the orange-grove below. Steps upon the sand. He will be sure to watch the windows through the opening in the clump of fig-trees. By leaning out across the ledge a trifle, not too far, because the guava-bough sweeps up, one can see him turning. How poetic is this southern light upon long Saxon hair! And in a man a smile is rare, like this for which a woman waits, with colour spent and breath in leash, and head bent low to listen, her cheek upon her two hands stretched palm to palm. Why will the tourists go to walk upon this street? It is the hour for the veranda and the shore, the forest and the yacht. Impossible to understand why anybody should want to wade across the sand. She leans upon his arm with a pretty colour, a superficial thing, overdressed and simpering. How can a woman love a man who carries his cane like that? His gloves are too light. There is a blue heron's wing upon her bonnet. They whisper together. They laugh and nod. The orange tree casts a long shadow over the fence, through which they pass, leaning and still. They do not note the length of the shadow. They do not care if it grows late. Steps upon the sand. It yields slowly to a weary foot, overtasked, perhaps, in wandering about the marshes, or a trifle lamed upon these awkward stirrups. He will limp up to the gate. It will be a minute's work to bound from the window, to clear the stairs, the veranda, the yard, to stand panting and strong. He will lean upon her shoulder as he did in the meadow once at home on a September noon. He will stoop and say, "'Was I gone too long?' The old woman was a slave. She cringes as she walks. Her head is bent well nigh at right angles from her shoulders. Her turban is made of the MacGregor plaid. Her fingers are yellow. The third knuckle on the left hand is mutilated. It is a sickly sight. The child with her is an octoroon. She has blue eyes and ties her hair with a lavender ribbon. The child says it is supper-time. One must be very strong and happy to watch these people. Steps upon the sand. Ah, there! How dull is fear! What a dotard is anxiety! Of course he would ride the pony-horse. They are short, clean steps, very clear and pleasant for a marsh-tacky's foot. It is not wise to look any longer through the rift between the fig-tree and the guava, to wait a little for a relief from overpressure with the gentler and the gladder way. The pony will come shying to the gate, a little obstinate, wanting to get to the stable, bruising the rider's leaping foot gently against the fence. She will wait and meet him at the landing. There are so many people down below. As he stoops, he will laugh a little, touching her beneath the chin. Her lips, already stirring, say, you shall never go alone again. The sportsman rides well. The young fellow is fitted with white gloves. He is fresh from a hunting trip up the Oklawa or the lakes. He is in a hurry for a civilized supper. His horse is white, too, and he rides fast. There is a shower behind them. Horse and rider bound before it. 
Children, unseen behind the guava-trees, cry that it is thundering. The air blackens down upon the river, the little yachts take in their sails, the surf stretches out its arms, the wind gets him to his solemn feet, the orange blossoms break and blow in, beating about the darkening room. In the confusion the supper-bell rings shrilly, and the people on the veranda scatter, laughing, from the rain. "'Better let her go,' said Mr. Smith. "'You couldn't petrify her to stay at home, sir,' said Jeff. Jeff had learned that word in the spelling-lesson that morning. He had not had an opportunity to use it in good society before. Jeff was very fond of Mrs. Ostrander. He felt that it would be a comfort to her, under these anxious circumstances, that he should acquaint the other boarders with some evidence of his proficiency under her educational attentions. For similar reasons he stopped and said distinctly, "'Miss Ostrander, I don't wish to be personal, but have you got a postage-stamp?' By that time all the boarders were upon the veranda to see them start. Jeff felt a little jealous of Mr. Smith. One driver, at least a driver who could spell petrify, was enough for any lady and that they should meet Mr. Ostrander directly, every boarder in the house was well agreed. It was agreed, however, that Mrs. Ostrander would feel relieved to start and find herself well upon the way toward her husband, who was later than an invalid had better be upon a stormy night. It was still raining lightly, but the restless clouds gave promise of a moon, whenever they should yield the wild field to which Avis uplifted her young face. The scant lamps of the town dwindled, nodding like old acquaintances to the passer, Knots of brightly dressed tourists flashed by, the faces of the great hotels and little shops turned their blazing brows away. Avis was perfectly familiar with her husband's usual haunts, and she directed her course at once toward the heart of the swamp. She sat quite still, the two men talked in low tones, as if in the presence of a sick person. Once Jeff tried to draw her into conversation. He said, "'Miss Ostrander, what I want to know is, how you don't go spell Agamemnon?' Jeff thought this would be a comfort to her. He prided himself upon the delicacy of his comprehension of Mrs. Ostrander. He did not know a boy in the hotels who had so handsome a lady, and he knew a good many boys who had ate at a table the winter through. In his heart Jeff was much out of patience with Mr. Ostrander. He expected to find that he had taken too much. That and consumption were the only things which ever happened to northern gentlemen in Pilatka. "'Don't you think,' suggested Mr. Smith, hesitating, that I had better first take out the horse and reconnoitre a little. Jeff will stay and take care of you." Avis turned her face towards him in the faint, perturbed light. She did not speak. "'Drive on, Jeff,' said Mr. Smith, with a sigh. It was now between eight and nine o'clock. The moon, as they entered the nave of the forest, came climbing into sight uncertainly, like a woman tripping on her robe. The beaten clouds sank towards the river, which it was no longer possible to see. Faintly, as a spent breath, as they rode in between the pines, Avis fancied that she heard the invisible waves upon the invisible shore. It seemed at first supernaturally dark within the woods. Optical illusions flared for a few moments before her eyes. She saw words stamp themselves and melt upon the air, and when she would read them, they were the words which Dante saw upon the lips of hell. This excitement subsided as soon as she had accustomed her eyes to the shadow. She had been there once before, with Philip, upon a brighter night, but they had not ventured far. He feared the malaria from the swamps. Her courage grew more rational as the great beauty of the wilderness closed in about them. The moon was now clear, and the light leaned in, sweet and sane, upon the gently resistant shadow. As they advanced, sickening odours stole up. Beyond the patrol of cedars the swamp lay skulking. It would soon be necessary to conduct their search on foot. As they stood calling, the mocking-birds began to answer them. Jeff wished he could see her face. He came up and touched her on the sleeve. 
He felt that Mr. Smith could not be expected to understand the necessities of the occasion. Mr. Smith had not put the chair up to the table three times a day for those two. The mulatto's yellow jaws began to work. "'Oh, Miss Ostrander, I got him now. I done got him on the way before we tie the horse. I got Agamemnon right easy in my mind at last.' Ha-ag-ag-ag-ee-ag-ee!" But Agamemnon was too much for poor Jeff, and choked him mercilessly in the swallowing. Jeff shrunk back. He thought she would have been so pleased. He might as well let Mr. Smith comfort her now. But Mr. Smith fell back a little, too. Mrs. Ostrander gently pushed him by, and took the lead in silence, beating down the Spanish bayonet which tore her feet. In the moonlit opening the purple poison from the swamp had a clean colour, like brown snow. Her slight figure seemed to wrestle with the dumb, unwilling darkness as she bent into it. Dawn comes with the reverent and delicate touch of a lover to the Florida waste. That night his arms stole with what seemed a special gentleness about her heart. It had been such a peaceful and womanly night. There had been no wind or rain, no blindness and no horror. It was quite warm, too. Even a sick man might breathe the air in safety. Avis had not tottered for an instant in her resolute hope. She should find him. God was merciful. As the moon dipped, a strange, shrill bird awoke and chirped, and slept again. Gliding creatures began to stir and skulk away, like evil thoughts before clean eyes, or terror before joy. The lamp-black of the distant shadows leaned to purple, the near undergrowth grew grey. Looking to the sky, one saw that it changed colour, like a cheek. Suddenly, then, the tops of the pines yielded, and each green needle fired. The fine outline of the cedars revealed itself sinuously, like Etruscan screens of old gold wire. The loath moss stirred, and showed bluish-white. The wild oranges seemed to tremble, like conscious creatures to whom the sun was plighted first. The rose curlews moved, tall, slender, and haughty. They looked less like birds than breathing roses. Avis, looking up, saw one rise, glad as a departing soul, and hover, burning to be gone, upon the air. Below him the light stole but slowly to the level where a human face might lie expectant of it. She pushed her way into the thicket, spreading her hands out, it was still so dark there. As she did so, she was conscious of being confronted by a close pair of gentle, puzzled eyes. She stopped short, and flung her hands before her face. "'Jeff!' she cried. It is the marsh pony!" The light was now deepening fast, and the two men instinctively and authoritatively drew the woman back. From the moment of finding the horse she had begun to tremble, and when they spoke to her she obeyed. As they beat about the opening, Jeff looked back over his shoulder. The mists of the damp place were turned red and rich, and through them he saw that she had fallen on her knees. She looked like one bathed in a scarlet flood. Then the live-oak bough swept in between them, and Jeff, for he could not see, went stumbling on. The white man and the mulatto looked at each other. "'Sir,' said Jeff, lifting his head after a silence, "'I've set the chair for him for most two months, and there was the writin' and the spellin' as she was so good. She would suspect me to be the man of us two to tell her. It ain't your fault, sir, that you can't be looked to understand her feelings, sir, so well.' She had risen from her knees when he had met her. She made no sound, but staggered. She still had her hands before her eyes. Jeff came up. He touched her, cringing, on the sleeve. "'Oh, Miss Ostrander, dear! He didn't take too much. He only took a bleeding. And he says we was to break it to you easy, and that he's glad to see you, ma'am, and has been done expectin' you, and that you're not to mind. And, oh, Miss Ostrander, now I think if you was to stop a minute, just easy where you stand, 
and spell a little. It would clear your mind out. He don't look so bad as some does. But if you was just to stop, before you sees him, it's only just behind the live-oak yonder. Miss Ostrander, dear." The daybreak sought them out gently. In the pathless forest whose solemn purpose no man knew, they clung to one another, and thanked God. He had been merciful. Care and change had done their worst. Beaten life had given challenge to their love. They could bear the incident of death. In that hour they were less grieved because they must be parted, than blessed because they loved each other. She had found him lying quite peacefully, expecting her. As she knelt, gathering his head upon her breast, the sun arose upon the wilderness. In the splendour he looked young to her, and a future in his face returned her gaze. He felt her arm and her warm breath, and smiled boyishly. "'It is hard to believe that a man can die here,' he said. He turned her cheek, and hers touched it. He asked her not to move. He had not suffered much, he said, nor long, and he felt sure she would come. He had not doubted for a moment. It was a pretty long night, but he knew she was not far. Once he thought he heard her, and the pony wandered off. It was more lonely after the pony went. But she must not mind. It had been warm and bright, and it had not been hard. Nothing had been hard. But the chance, if she had been too late, that would have been pretty hard. But he knew that she would come. Then he asked her to lift him a little more upon her arm, and if he tired her too much. After that he seemed to sleep lightly. He upheld his face as if he drank her abundant breath. When he awoke, he said, "'Avis, do you remember, once, how you said that you would like to die?' "'Hush, my darling. Yes.' "'Love, if I ask it, will you kiss my breath away? When I speak again, will you kiss me on the lips?' "'Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, yes.' Avis. When she lifted her face, the rose curlew hung overhead, palpitating with joy. The two men had long since withdrawn into the forest. End of chapter 24